I think what that really, really taught me was being so clear on expectations, being so clear on exactly what somebody wants, doing the work up front could have completely avoided that issue that happened later on down the line. Generally, when you kind of realize that the more you keep saying yes, in the early days, let's, let's put it right here. You're in startup mode. You're still trying to figure out product market fit. You're trying to figure out what the market wants. If they ask you for something and you don't currently do it, it might be a good idea to go, yeah, we can do that because it might be a whole new product line you've never even thought of. But once you've kind of hit a bit of market maturity or you've, you've started to get your business to a bit more maturity, Every time you start customizing, tweaking, a client says, oh, can you do SEO? And you don't normally do SEO. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to go and find myself an SEO person. I'll, I'll get them to do the work and we'll add that in. In my experience, nearly every time we've done that, it ends up turning into more, more mayhem and, and nightmare than it's worth. How that came about was not watching the numbers in the business and was operating from hope numbers and hope growth. I'll invest in this and hope we get the sales. I'll employ the staff member and hope that things do well. You know, hope numbers and hope growth is really funny because you always see the upside, but you just never see the downside. You never really stop and, you know, look back at the previous quarter and say, oh, hey, how did that go? You just keep hoping and you, and you just keep going. Welcome to Entrepreneurs Rising. I am your co-host, Carl Taylor, and I am joined by the amazing, impressive Peter Moriarty. Uh, hey, how you doing, Pete? Hey, man. I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing really great. I'm excited to be here on the show with you today because today we're going to talk about something that we pretty well since the inception of this podcast, we were like, we should do an episode on this. And we've just kind of dragged the chain a little bit and not gotten out and done it. And today we're finally going to start delving into some of the biggest business mistakes we've made. And uh, I'm really excited to hear some of the juicy stories on your side. So let's just dig right in, I guess. Like, firstly, how do you define, I'm curious to know, like, how do you define and decide what is a big business mistake versus a little business mistake? Yeah, that's a, that's a challenge because I think my, my spiritual belief being that there are no mistakes and everything is perfect and uh, that, you know, every experience that we have is just a stepping stone in the, in the, the tapestry of our life. Like I, I find it difficult to, uh, to, to identify with the idea of that was a mistake or I regret that. I, I received a, a message from a friend this morning, uh, a text message, which is just coincidental, who said, you know, are there any regrets that you have in your life. And that was my response. I, I find it difficult to identify with the idea of regret uh, if I am to believe that the present moment is perfect and living in the past or living in the future is, is just going to bring in suffering. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's, let's move that, that bit aside. Uh, there are things that I've done in business that have set me back or maybe set me back. All right, let's, let's take all the yeah, woo-woo out well, of yeah, let's, let's, let, this, yeah, like we, If we're going to talk woo-woo, it's like, well, no. How could it have set you back if you're have exactly where you're back? supposed to be right now? There are things that I've done that at the time I, I thought, oh shit, I would have preferred not to have done that. <laughs> and I now realize they're all part of the perfect tapestry of life. Um, but at the time, they were challenging. They were, uh, in my current frame of thinking, missteps. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be sharing them. What's a big could, one and what's a little we, one? Could we call I, I them big like learning 
big lessons could that you know it would that help get over the 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 coding of the language of use of of mistakes because you and i kind of like our biggest lessons biggest lessons the biggest lessons that have come out of you know what you know 20 years of of business on both sides of us effectively so um yeah all right so uh, we've got little lessons we've got big lessons would that be fair to say yeah that sounds good that sounds right. good let's go with that so how about you kick us off let's start with um maybe start with one of your more littler uh, lessons that you've you've learned and then we'll go from there sure um the little lesson that i learned and this was i was around 21 or 22 years old uh was around uh i guess scoping but but clear communication I had a client and they were a design agency and they had a lot of files and a lot of data. They were creating digital assets. They're working with Macs, Photoshop files, those kind of things, videos, and uh, they were running out of storage. Now they had a one terabyte server at the time. Um, and we worked out that they needed probably about four to six uh, terabytes of data storage to store their assets as the business was going to continue to grow. And uh, they came to us and they asked for what we thought was uh, a repository to store their data. Um, and so we scoped out a solution. It was a 16-bay hard drive array. Uh, so 16 hard drives all put together uh, and ended up having an effective storage of, I think, 12 to 14 uh, terabytes. Uh, and um, you know the way that those storage arrays work is a couple of them are used for spares, just in case one of the hard drives dies and, and there's, there's you know, kind of self-backing up. And um, the value of that device was probably in the realm of ten dollars to $15,000. It was around that, uh, which was a lot of money for me being 22 years old, running my business, that was a big job. So we sold it to the customer. We got the, you know, the, the proposal signed. Uh, we ordered the, the part from the manufacturer, which important note was a specialized uh, device and a specialized part. Um, and we had it delivered and we set it up and we migrated their data and we got it all spun up and we put photos on Facebook of this cool new thing that we'd bought because it was an exciting piece of technology. And after we had shown it to the client and showed them how to use it and here's all the, the, you know, the, the storage data that you can use, they went to uh, grab one of the hard drives out of the array. They said, hey, how do, we, how do we eject the hard drive? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, well you know, I want to take it home for the backup. And I said, well, well hold on. Uh, no, 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 this, this, this lives here. It stays here. Each of those hard drives need to talk to each other. You'll lose data if you, if you, you pull out one of the hard drives. I mean, it'll, it'll go to one of the spares, but if you just start yanking out hard drives, then this thing has trouble. And they said, well well, how are we going to back up the data and take it off site? And what then dawned on us, <laughs> uh, on us both, was that they had the expectation that this was a backup device for them to take their data off site. And that's what the 16 drives were for. Rather than creating an array for storage purposes, their belief was, uh, and what they wanted was something for off-site backup. So each drive would be like a, a different day's backup or something was in their head of what they thought it would be. Totally different system. This system couldn't yeah. do that. And just a, you know, a, a, a fault and a result of some crossed wires. Uh, now, you know, that was pretty straightforward. They said, okay, this doesn't do what we want it to do. We want a refund. And, you know, it was sad to lose a small amount of profit that we'd made on the deal. But we called the manufacturer and we said, hey, we've got a problem here. We need to uh, refund this unit. 
because it didn't quite exactly do what the customer wanted it to do. And the supplier said, sorry, that's a specialized unit, no refunds. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. you know, our business was probably doing about $250,000 a year in revenue at that point. Uh, and, and, you know, we would survive from a hit of $15,000, uh, but that, that would have really hurt us. We definitely didn't have that much cash just sitting in the bank to be able to fund that mistake. Um, and it's but, a hardware as well. Like yeah. hardware is very low margin, right? That's a lot of, you know, it's not like you're swimming in, in cash in the IT no, game. We probably made 10% on that. So, so what we'd have to pay out was, you know, 90% of the, of the value of that, what we'd have to wear as a cost. And we had no one else to sell it to because it was a completely specialized unit. Now, the silver lining of this story is the partner as a husband and wife team running the business. The partner of the, uh, of the, the, the managing director of the business uh, she came to us and she said, hey, look, the solution that we need here is to have the offsite backup. It's very likely that the business is going to continue to grow and we're going to continue to have needs for data storage. So we can probably keep this. And keep in mind, I'm 22 years old. They knew that I was young. I was subleasing an office from them. So it was in everyone's interest that we would keep the peace somehow because we were literally in the same office as them. And so uh, the partner recommended, she said, hey, why don't you fund a couple of three terabyte backup drives and you do a free setup of those. And that was going to cost us, I think about three or $4,000 for that out of our pocket. Uh, and, uh, and we'll call it a day. We'll call it even. It's a misunderstanding uh, you know, the scope wasn't completely 100% clear between us. Let's just move on from it. And, uh, and we took up that deal. And so that, that was the silver lining. It was like a get out of jail free card when I just could not see another solution. Uh, it was just, you know, the, the solution or any solution was completely blocked. And we got lucky. We just got lucky. And I think what that really, really taught me was being so clear on expectations being so clear on exactly what somebody wants. With hardware in the IT industry, it's very much a no going back moment. Um, and, you know, doing the work up front could have completely avoided that issue that happened later on down the line. Yeah, like, obviously, you know, you, you know my backstory that I had an IT company just like you and Wow. I mean, you say you got lucky. I don't, I don't, it doesn't sound like you got lucky. It sounds like you had great clients. You had good relationships with those clients. Like, let's be honest. I think that's ultimately really what, what played in your favor there. But I, I, I've been in those experiences where, you know, you don't have customers that are quite as forgiving, as nice, as understanding. They're just like, this is how it is. This is how, this is what I want. Um, it's funny you share that. And I, I feel like I've got my own stories to share in a similar vein. I just can't think of the details. I, I can just, I just have vague memories of like, yep, we've had those situations where it's like, oh shit, now we've got to refund this person. But it was never a specialized deal. It obviously doesn't have the same emotional charge to me as, as that one did for you to create this memory. Um, and I, but I think it's really important, that especially if you're in a service business, understanding and ensuring there's clear communication of asking the expectations of what is the client looking for and is what you're providing an actual fit for their need, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's the core of what a service business is. Uh, they provide a need, they explain their need, where you identify and then you provide the best solution. Uh, but man, I don't envy that situation that uh, I can imagine it would have been 
pretty intense it was, at the time. It was traumatic. It was traumatic. And, and to the point of sleepless nights, uh, stressing about it. And I think, you know, I've now built a lot more resilience uh, over my career being in business. Uh, however, you know, there's still probably a little bit of a trigger there. Uh, mm. You know, if a customer asks for a refund or, or you know, or we miss, miss a scope on something and we don't get that uh, perfect, um, then that kind of thing uh, can continue to come up. Would you like to take a turn, Carl, or will I share another? Yeah, no, I, I would, look, I'd love to share. Uh, you know, it's interesting, like, before we hit go on this, it was like, what are some of the big lessons or big mistakes? I don't, I don't necessarily think of the mistakes, but there's definitely been these little lessons for me along the way that really stand out. And one in particular, kind of in vain, uh, in the same vein as scoping, is trusting your gut when you feel like this client or process that you're talking to, they're asking you to do something that might be out of the norm, or maybe it's not out of the norm. It's your normal offering, but you just got, you just get a feeling. You're like, I really shouldn't take this deal. I shouldn't take this deal. I shouldn't do this, but you're, you're poor. You've got, you need cash, you need sales. And so you're like, oh, I just need the client. And you take the client because you need the money. Or so you tell yourself and you're like, I'm going to live to regret this. Even if you're not conscious of it, you just feel it. And then in my experience, eight or nine times out of 10, yep. The situation comes up and you're like, oh, this is, and it's not that it's not necessarily that they're bad clients. Like there's one that comes to mind for me. It was a, it was a, a speaker presenter in the early days of automation agency. Um, before we kind of went to the model we have now and we're a bit more full service and you've got a lot more of me in the process. And, um, just, I remember this particular, this particular person really, took control. They were very, you know, very authoritative type of person. And so they really took control of, I want this and this, is how I want it. And this, 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 and they weren't overly technical. And so I created this amazing solution, built out this great funnel that would be look nice and just should be amazing. I'd recommend this or recommend that. And then they would just ask a million questions extra over and above what the original scope was. It's like, Oh, can you just add this? And can you just add this? And can you just add this? And where I was up to at the time, I wasn't really good at maybe setting boundaries around that to go, well, no, this is, you got to pay more money. You got to pay more money. And, oh, we'll pay, we'll pay half now. And then we'll pay like they were normal. Our normal payment terms were like, you know, you either pay all up front or I think we had a two, two payment process, but no, no, they, they wanted to set their own and negotiate their own. No, no, we want to do a six payment or whatever it was scenario. And so there was just all these signs that was like this, it was a bit of power play maybe that this guy was wanting to just go, this is how, it, this is how he wants it. And so I took the job um, and at first it was like, oh, this is amazing. It was because it was a big sale. I've got all this money. This is amazing. I'm so good. So glad. And then maybe a month in all of a sudden there's like, oh, and what about this? And what about this? No, that's not quite how I was expecting it because there was probably some scoping problems there or communication mistakes. Uh, and ultimately over the long term, lifetime value dollars spent with us was a lot of money. It was actually from a, from a dollars to the business, a lot of money. But if I, if I equate the dollars received to the emotional roller coaster of servicing that client, I would in a heartbeat, if I had the same situation, say, I don't need the money. I only took the money because I needed the money where the business was, I think at that time, you know, like I think we had maybe 10 grand of that left in the bank. Um, and it was, it was kind of like, we need cash. We need to make sales. There's no, there's not much in the pipeline right now. And uh, so I took it 
And while it got us through the emotional angst, I reckon if I'd said no to that client and just waited a bit longer for the next client that came along, we would have been totally okay. But there were lots of lessons in that. And so the big lesson for me has been when I feel that feeling, I get that feeling or if someone comes to me and says, hey, can you do this? And it's outside of the model of how our business is. And I'll be like, this is how we work. This is what we do. This is our process. I'm far more just like, this is the process. This is how we do it. Like, do you want six payments? Like, I get that. I appreciate that. Our model is we do it this way. You know, and, and it's easier to do that when you don't need the money. That's the biggest lesson. When you actually don't need the client, when they need you more than you need them, that's when all of a sudden you can, you can actually go, no, this is how I want to do things. And I want to serve you and I want to help you. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make sure that this is a business that serves me too. That's, that was probably one of my biggest lessons. Yeah. That's definitely a challenge, isn't it? It's balancing, particularly when you're in growth mode. It's kind of like, how many more of these customers do I have to take on that I don't really love and that don't really set my soul on fire to, to serve before I can get to a point where I can say, nah, F off anyone that doesn't really fit within who we want to work with. And I'm not going to paint a, a rosy picture of, no, just to, just to work with people who set your soul on fire and spark joy. That's not the reality. The no. reality is like you got to eat. And so there's going to be times where you're going to have to take on that client that is maybe not the best client for you to be serving. I will say though, it gets better as long as you work on your boundaries. And mm. I think it's important to note, Carl, that this client that we're talking about, this fictional character of the client who's not a good fit for you, who's maybe pushing your boundaries or uh, you know, doesn't quite fit in with the kind of person that you want to serve, they're not a bad person. There's no, absolutely not. nothing wrong with them as a person. And they're just, they're just living their life and doing their thing. It's got something to do with you and your boundaries, or maybe it's something to do with your traumas or whatever, but it's something in your experience that is experiencing them as uncomfortable. And, you know, I think you, I'm so glad that you mentioned boundaries because that's, that's the thing that you've got to work on with these situations. And it's like, okay, well, as, as long as you work on those boundaries and bit by bit, you get better and better and better and better with them you get to the point of being able to say, no, I'm not going to take on that work. It also happens to be a nice situation where you've got enough income coming in that you can say no to that work. But there's always the adage of the customer that you say no to clears up the mental space for another customer who's going to be a better fit for you. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, so, it's so true. Like all of that comes down to if you've got the strong boundaries, a lot of the time I've found that people will respect it. Obviously there are some people that it's just in their nature. They prefer to, to be the one in control. Um, but a lot of the time, like if, if someone asks, say, I really want it this way. And you say, look, sorry, the way we do it is this way and this way. A lot of the time they'll go, Oh, okay, that's cool. Mm. And um, there's a great quote I read the other day. And that's that when you set your boundaries and you set them firmly, the people who don't respect them will disappear from your life. Mm. They'll, just, they'll just move away from you. Because when you set those boundaries, if they are someone who wants to push them, they will self-select out when you assert them. Very true. Exactly. Like, oh, so that doesn't work for me. And they'll, they'll move on. And, and it's much, but it is much easier in my experience to do that when it's a prospect, you know, with cash, in front of waving cash in front of you effectively, not actual cash, but, uh, and you're looking at your empty bank balance and, and you're going, mm, I need to eat this week. 
And so you take the job. Whereas when you don't need that, when you're like, well, we're okay. We've got enough clients. We've got, we've got profit. I, sorry, look, as much as I know you really want it this way, that's just not how we do it. And I think that comes to another boundary. I see a lot of service businesses make, and it is one of my other mistakes is constantly a client asks for something and you kind of go, Oh, you don't normally do it, but because they say, can you do this as well? You go, Oh yeah. And you kind of bespoke it and you go, Oh, we'll do this and we'll do this. And look, I'm still guilty of doing that even at stage of business I'm in now at times. And I'm not going to say I regret it. I learn from it. Um, and generally when you kind of realize that the more you keep saying yes in the early days, let's, let's put it right here. You're in startup mode. You're still trying to figure out product market fit. You're trying to figure out what the market wants. If they ask you for something and you don't currently do it, it might be a good idea to go, yeah, we can do that. Cause it might be a whole new product line you've never even thought of. But once you've kind of hit a bit of market maturity or you've started to get your business to a bit more maturity, every time you start customizing, tweaking, a client says, oh, can you do SEO? And you don't normally do SEO. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to go and find myself an SEO person. I'll, I'll get them to do the work and we'll add that in. In my experience, nearly every time we've done that, it ends up turning into more, more mayhem and, and nightmare than it's worth. Uh, I don't know if you've got your own experience in that. I, no, I just, I just can't reiterate that enough that every single time that I have pushed to accommodate outside our strategy, it's ended in tears and it's always ended up wasting more time than it was worth or ending up being refunded. And I think there's like, there's a balance that you've got to find as an entrepreneur, because by definition, we see what others don't see if we're starting a business and we have to have belief in ourselves that others don't have. And in a way we kind of are creating a future based on a bit of a delusion. And so I think there's, there's a healthy level of delusion for entrepreneurs, but also there's a point where you need to mature and decide, okay, there's an opportunity here for me to uh, indulge in my delusion that this will work with this customer. You know, what data do I have that's telling me this may or may not uh, work and you may choose to act differently, but it's all part of our lessons and all part of the journey, right? You know, if you take on that customer and you need to learn that lesson one more time, well, it sounds like maybe you needed to learn that lesson one more time. And there's many lessons that I'm still learning, which I love. Uh, but sometimes it is just one more time to learn that lesson. Oh, I, I a hundred percent agree. And, and you, you, what comes to mind here too, is sometimes some of what I just said, or nearly all of what I said, you could flip that around and say, it's not true as well, because mm -hmm. there are new product lines and additions to services that we have done. Like even in recent times, we've had clients come to us saying, oh, we really wish you had a project management service. And that's an idea that it wasn't the first time it's ever come, but it was, it's an idea that we floated around in our background, in our minds and in conversations for years. And we finally had a client who was kind of here saying I'd pay for it. And I said, Oh, I'd only be able to do it if I was charging this price. And they said, okay, and I'll pay six, I'll pay six months up front. Okay. So we went, you know what? But I set expectations. I said, look, this is not something we normally do. This is a complete beta trial. I'm going to take you on doing this with the full transparency of, at the end of that six months, we might say, this is not a good fit and we're never doing it again. Or we might go, Hey, this has shown us a whole new product line we could offer to all of our clients. And so there are still opportunities in paying attention to what people are asking you for. But I think there is value in understanding what's worth exploring and what's worth not and where you're, and it comes to self-awareness of where you're up to in business, the capacity you have in your team or in your own uh, headspace to be able to 
spin another plate as you might want to call it. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely still value in it sometimes going beyond what you currently do. Cause if you always stick to what you always do, you're going to get outgrown. You're going to become the Kodak, right? You're going to, <laughs> you're going to be out of business before you know it. Yeah. Speaking of spinach, spinning plates, I'm going to segue into uh, when I was spinning the plates of debt. <laughs> uh, uh. And so this is one of, this is one of my biggest lessons. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, most, most business owners would have some kind of debt story. Uh, mine was pretty hardcore. I was 23, 24 years old at the time. And, uh, and I managed to get up to about $350,000 worth of debt. Um, and our revenue at that time was probably seven or 800,000 a year. Um, and so if you think about that, that's not a debt to equity ratio. It's a debt to revenue ratio of, uh, nearly 50%. Um, that's a pretty crazy amount and how that came about, because I think I should probably answer that, um, was not watching the numbers in the business and was, was operating from hope numbers and hope growth. Opium. Uh, you know, I'll invest in this and hope we get the sales. I'll employ the staff member and hope that things do well. And, you know, hope numbers and hope growth is really funny because you always see the upside, but you just never see the downside. You never really stop and, you know, look back at the previous quarter and say, oh, hey, how did that go? You just keep hoping and you, and you just keep going. Um, and so what I found was that um, that mindset and that mentality, particularly where credit cards get involved, of it's a business expense. They are very dangerous words. When you say it's a business expense and that's what's going to justify me to make the purchasing decision, that's very different to asking, do I really need this right now? Um, and, you know, people run into all kinds of problems with credit cards in their personal life, buying stuff that they don't need. I thought I was immune from that because I didn't have a personal credit card, but I had business credit cards, which spiraled out of control. Now, the flip side to that is, okay, the business was growing and we were, you know, quote unquote, investing in growth. Uh, but looking back on that now, I don't think that's sustainable growth to take on that much debt, which part of it was actually investing in the growth and part of it was just completely foolish. Um, but I don't think it's actually worthwhile to bring on that much debt. So what I learned from that and the biggest lessons for me, I mean, it took years to get out of that, years and years and years to get out of that debt. And the business continued growing. So we did need to keep investing in the business. And you know, some years it grew at nearly 100%. And for a business that's six or seven years old to grow at 100%, which we did, uh, that does require cash and capital um, to be able to, to have that happen. Um, but what I really learned was to completely change the approach on how I managed money, how I managed debt. And it's something that I learned from playing a computer game called SimCity when I was a young, early teenager. And well, even before I was a teenager. Now, what I found was every time I played the game and I started with a big pile of cash, and I invested in heaps and heaps of assets, and then I just hoped that things would work, I always failed. I could never create a profitable city. The game is about building cities. But I found that when I started from a small farm and built that farm to a town, and then built that town to a region, and then built that region to like a, a city, and then built that city to a metropolis, I was able to keep it in profit as I went along the way. The investment ended up being the same but I needed the dynamics and the cycles of 
the income and the outgoings to kind of reach a sink as I was going along that growth journey. And I literally sat down and said, okay, every time I play SimCity, this is how I used to play. And this is how I'm going to play in the business now. And since then, I've literally just taken small steps with all of the investments, with anything that I choose to pay for. And I've made sure that things are always profitable from day one. And then I've just gradually, gently, slowly built on that. And that's been a pretty good strategy for me. It's kind of worked. And I think we've got a whole nother episode in like what I've learned from computer games. I was just thinking I was like, that we, to business. There's a whole episode here on what there's I a whole, There's a whole episode there. There's a whole episode. Um, <sighs> but before I get your thoughts, Carl, because I'm really interested in them. The final thing that really came in for me was, you know, being an entrepreneur and being a creative. It's easy to say, I don't like the numbers or I, you know, or, or, you know, like the, you know, I don't do the numbers or that's my weak area. Right. And yeah, sure. You've admitted your weak area. Awesome. Great. Let me give you a reality check. If you're the CEO, you need to understand, you need to know the, the numbers end of story. And if you want to continue playing small, that's totally fine. You can give yourself the excuses that you don't do the numbers or you outsource those or whatever. But what I know from my experience is the more I took the financial and the commercial realities of the business seriously, and I seriously upskilled myself, the more successful the business became immediately and over and over and over and over again to the point where my best friend in the business is our CFO because I am obsessive about the numbers and making sure they work. Is that my natural state? No. Should I have been born an accountant in another, in another life? No, it's not my thing. What my thing is, is growing a successful business. And I've realized that actually being really attuned to the numbers and the capital flows of the business have what's, uh, what's led me to be, uh, to be successful. I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, I've always kind of thought of my, well, actually, no, that's a lie. Uh, what I was about to say in my IT business, which I ran with my father, I let him manage all the money, all the numbers stuff. Uh, and then when we sold that business and I really was then focusing on my own thing, I really started to, to, to make sure I understood. And I always understood the P&L, like dad and I would go through P&Ls and balance sheets. And, but I kind of abdicated, I guess, and just kind of go, like, oh, he's, he's older, he's wiser, he should be managing this stuff. And, um, you know, I love my dad. He's amazing. Maybe I should have taken a bit more interest and paid a bit more attention. And since doing my own thing, I've from day one have, always had very detailed profit and losses, uh, lots of line items. So I can run reports. I know what it is. I, I'll do spreadsheets to go, okay, I want to achieve this, you know, work backwards from that. If I want this kind of revenue, I want this kind of profit based on these percentages. What does that mean we need to do here? Uh, and I can have fun in the spreadsheet, but if you were, like you said, I would hate to be an accountant like that, that level of detail. Like I think that's where a lot of people go, Oh, I'm not good with numbers and I'm not good at the detail. I'm not good with those details either, but I, what I enjoy is I personally really enjoy playing with numbers to go, oh, so if I just change this, does that, it makes this number become like $5 million instead of half a million dollars. And, you know, it's like, oh, and a lot of it's like unrealistic. We're not going to go from where we are to this point right away, but it, it juices me up and excites me. So understanding what numbers in your business mean and how one number contributed or connected to another number 
can equal, you know, the compounding effect, how that could equal. I mean, even recently, uh, every year in automation, see, we do a, a thing where we set critical number for the business. And this year we decided to set two critical numbers. One is our percentage of annual churn. And the other is the number, average number of new clients that we add every month. They're the critical numbers we're working on. And we've got bonuses attached to those particular numbers. And it's interesting, like running the spreadsheet, we thought we knew which one was going to be the most important number to work on. We thought that would be churn. And um, when I ran the forecast, though, when I got in, I got in, didn't ask my, my finances person to do it. I got in and played with the spreadsheets and I ran some of these projections and was like, huh, the profit difference is actually really small when we add just the churn changes. If we do just the average number of new customers, the profit is huge. But here was the real kicker. If we do them both together, it was enormous, the profit difference that this would make. When these two numbers combined, the compound of increasing the number of average new clients with reducing the churn created this huge compounding impact. And I think it's important for business owners to understand what the different numbers in their business mean, how they connect to each other, you don't have to do the spreadsheets like I do. You don't hate to do that. You can outsource all that and they can just give it to you. But I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation with a very well-known business expert many years ago um, where he asked me, oh, do you like do, you like do a, a regular profit and loss? But he wasn't asking from a, well, my story is he wasn't asking from a giving advice, but more he was himself looking to understand like do you you know did you look at a profit and loss do you understand what a profit and loss looks like and i could the, the story i took from it was he he didn't understand a profit and loss and i remember being shocked to be like you you're you're this business expert you um and you you seem to not actually understand how to read a profit and loss and that's i think that's a really important that every business owner go through a simple course or something to learn that yeah i can't wait to record our future episode on uh, wealth dynamics and how you know different archetypes of uh, of you know businesses uh, business owners sorry will show up in different ways and you know I really like that uh, for you it's about like solving the problem and tweaking the numbers and knowing your uh, your archetype in the wealth dynamics I know that I have a similar interest um, and I think you know for someone who is a more creative entrepreneur who's interested in more creation. Uh, you know, numbers don't always feel like creation. They feel, you know, probably more like analysis or more like strategy. Um, but the beauty of how you can apply how you work to the things that you need to do is you can kind of find ways to trick yourself. And we're going to talk about that in the future episode. So look out for the Wealth Dynamics episode. Uh, but you can trick yourself into, okay, well, how can I make this fun for myself based on uh, what I need to get done here? Uh, but I think Carl, we should move on um, to another story now. Uh, have you got another one that you'd like to share with us? Oh, look, I, I've got a, a little little extra story, I guess, that we, we, you've reminded me of because of some tech world. And it, guys, it is a little in vain, uh, in line with what we just already talked about before my last story, but it just it comes to mind. I remember years ago, before voice over IP, you know, making phone calls through the internet was a big thing. Uh, I sold this server to a client and then they said, oh, we really need a new phone system. Never. I had never in my life set up a voice over IP system. I went online, I Googled some stuff and saw, oh, you can just download this software that's free. You build it a box and you plug this stuff in. It's super easy. And so I built it and I delivered it to the client. 
and the client thought it was great. You know, we found a supplier for the cheap phone calls, which they thought was going to be amazing. We showed all the forecasts. You know what we didn't think about? The quality of their internet connection. And we're talking, we're going back maybe, maybe old more than 10 years ago now. So, um, you know, the quality of the internet was even worse than it is now. I don't even know what the lesson there is. I just reminded of that story. I feel like I needed to share it. There's all of them. Just don't get into VoIP is the lesson I took from that. <laughs> never, never do VoIP. And I know that Pete does some VoIP stuff, but like, I just, oh. it's, it's a great, it's a great lesson. Um, yeah. I've got one, Pete, I've got go. nothing else to say about that. <laughs> uh, I've got another, I've got another one to share. Um, you know, we had a partnership where someone was referring us clients and, um, you know, we, we'd been working together for a number of years and we'd spent time building the relationship and I'm very much a person in my psychology that once something's set, I just kind of leave it. I set it up and then it's done. And that's very much a kind of like, you know, creator type mindset. It's like, hey, I created it. It's been created. Uh, and forgetting something like maintenance can really allow things to come undone. Um, and so relationship maintenance is an important thing. Uh, you know, of course, in your intimate relationships, uh, but also in, of course, a business sense as well with partnerships. And we'd set up this partnership and everything was going great. And then for a period of months, we just stopped receiving leads or referrals from this, this person, this, this uh, partner. And I found it a bit odd and, and uh, I jumped on the phone to them and I said, hey, how's it going? Look, we haven't really uh, seen many people come our way for the last few months. And they said, oh yeah, we're working with someone else now. And... I said, well, you know, what do you mean? We had an agreement, we had a deal, we had a, you know, a partnership in place where you were sending us these customers and we were making really good money from that as well. And they said, no, no, we've just chosen someone else. Uh, and so I asked, well, when were you going to let us know that? And they said, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we probably, probably should have let you know that. And, you know, I think the lesson there was that you know, I couldn't just rely on someone else in their own reality, managing their own business, doing what was in their best interest for their clients and their business to make that decision. I couldn't expect undeniable loyalty from them forever if I hadn't maintained the relationship and I hadn't maintained the relationship. I hadn't kept in touch. I hadn't set goals with them. I hadn't, uh, you know, had activity and continued rapport building. And, you know, that's a pretty stark reminder of, where your rapport sits with someone that they will cease doing business with you and start working with someone else, not with any malice, but just because there wasn't actually a relationship there. They just kind uh, of forgot about you. Deteriorated through lack of love and affection. Uh, the relationship had uh, then deteriorated. Um, and so for me, that, uh, that really was important for me. You know, it was a good wake up call um, on how to do things differently. I'm still not fantastic at the, partnerships maintenance side of relationships in business but i've hired a phenomenal general manager who only cares about that and it allows me to focus on other areas where i'm really great at and he's able to do that uh, because that's really good for him but what's the risk there well the risk is if he was to leave the business and had the relationships with those customers and those partners uh, there would be a bit of a hole there that's missing so uh, yeah important lessons for me with that one and uh, that was a, a good kick in the nuts and a good lesson when it happens. Ah, uh, that I mean, that hits home for me. I'm I'm like you, Pete. I, um, you know, I, I'm a member of great partnership referral partners who who send business our way, and I'm I'm not 
great and we don't have a you know we don't have a great system and process and, and team member consistently nurturing and maintaining those relationships um so you're right like that's i think that's an important one anyone that's got referral relationships you've got me thinking going like oh we need to really up our game and uh yeah that's a good lesson to learn that's a good lesson to learn i think it's a good segue into our next episode uh, which is going to be on uh, wealth dynamics on your profile and uh and how you can use that to your success in business uh but carl let's let's wrap this one i'd love to know from you the listener what are your biggest business mistakes what have been the biggest lessons for you the things that you've learned along the way uh please go ahead and pop them in the comments whether you're listening to this or watching it on social uh or via uh, libsyn or even on our website uh go ahead and drop us a comment or send us a message that would be interesting for us to know and of course you can access all of our episodes online at rising.show that's our website which has everything there make sure you're following us on the socials as well and if you've listened to this and you've got value, we'd really love you going to the trouble of leaving us a review. Uh, it's very, very meaningful to us to hear reviews of what you think of the show. So we know that you're listening, if you're enjoying it or what you'd like to hear differently, please let us know. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for hosting with me, man. I love spending time with you and I've enjoyed sharing these stories. Thanks for sharing such amazing stories. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Rock and roll. Bye. See you later, guys. We will catch you in the next one.